Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Hello, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now, today's episode, we are talking with Petro, who is one of the rescue leaders with the Swaledale Mountain Rescue. Good morning, Pete. Good morning. And um, I know I know that Swaledale Mountain it's Swaledale Mountain Rescue, isn't it? But you also do caving and all sorts of other rescues. Yes, the, we're actually two separate teams, which are combined to form the Swaledale Mountain Rescue, which is uh, cave rescue, mountain rescue, and these days we do swift water rescue as well. And it's, it's been running for 50 years, I understand, last year, 50, 50 year? 50 years of uh, tramping around the fells there, <laughs> looking for looking for uh, unfortunate people. Yes, but um, you have a pretty good reputation, I know, for actually getting to places where others can't reach. Yeah, the, the, the Mountain Rescue originally set out as principally a stretcher-carrying team, like all Mountain Rescues did and came out of the back of um, often a lot of army people or um, mountaineers that realised that if you don't go and rescue your friends, nobody will come and rescue you. Mm. And so it would often uh, just be an old military-style stretcher that people would flog up the mountains or up the fells here uh, to go and get somebody who's injured. But since then it's progressed into um, search search teams, um, much more um, elaborate equipment. But we still principally carry people off on stretchers as our sort of like our bread and butter. <laughs> yes, so um, I understand that you've got, well, that you, it's began with just 12 people, 12 local people. That was in 19, 1968, was it? Must I believe have been, so. yes, yes. yes. I wasn't around then. To be no, honest. no. <laughs> I was down in the black country. <laughs> Uh, me, me and a young lad. Yes. But, but I was down in the, a Derbyshire team then. Because my history is uh, through cave rescue mostly. Um, although it's always been in very close association with mountain rescue. And these days, you can't really tell the difference because we, um, whether the organisational part of it is exactly the same uh, for a mountain call out as for underground call out or whether it's in the middle of a river. A river. And you get called, um, it's presumably the police initially, do they, how, how do you get your, your call-outs? The uh, North Yorkshire Police mm. um, are responsible for all call-outs, and they then call the appropriate people, and then delegate the responsibility to us for actually performing the rescue, for performing the rescue or the search, or whatever it might be. So we work in a lot of cooperation with the police and also with the ambulance service. So for it's only recently the ambulance service can actually call us directly. Okay. But we still work under the police and the police provides us with our insurance. Right. So when we're operating on their behalf, they are providing us with the relevant insurance. So, But we do a lot of um, animal rescues as well. Okay. And uh, so I think over the last... I've been here now for over 30 years and I, somebody asked me to tot up how many animal rescues I've personally done and it's over 100 now. And what sort of animals then? Um, farm animals? Dogs? Uh, 
Well, uh, we've done loads of sheep. Sheep can get in the most ridiculous place. (laughs) So they're on crags or down holes. Uh, Dogs, lots of dogs. Dogs dogs like going down holes, but they um, and terriers like to go down really small holes. And we've frequently rescued terriers from down 70 more feet. But it's all very satisfying. Everybody likes to get an, an animal out hole. Yes, it's good. definitely. Yeah. And I know missing persons. That's that's something that you uh, that you get called out on as well, don't you? Yeah. Well, missing pe- missing person or mispers, as they tend to get. All right. Misspersons uh, are um, there many different types of them. There are people that are just genuinely lost and want to be found. Then those that are lost that don't want to be found. Uh, so if you if you somebody who is um, despondent for whatever reason, whether depressive or, or for other reasons, um, that can be quite difficult to find. But they really need to be found to be helped. Uh, and then there's people who are more and more is people with uh, dementia, and they just really don't know where they want to be as such. And they will often have a take a single uh, single mindedly head off towards somewhere they used to know and often just in a straight line they don't go mm. there. <laughs> it's really it's really difficult mm. and then we've had people who have had um might be coming out of a drug problem mm. and and they've disappeared and they really do need finding because they need very immediate help and the way the weather can be here as well very challenging i guess yes although uh Certainly in this area, I would say the number of call-outs for people lost on the tops, as it were, mm. is reduced a lot. And I think it's most down to mobile phones. Just people have another option, so they can call up and ask for help off their friends mm. um, before they actually need to call the mountain rescue. And of course now we've got GPS as well. So we've got a global positioning, so people can click a button on the phone and it'll say, you're here. Yes. Which is actually a really big help to us as well. When we do get people who are lost or injured, and if they've got a phone, we can ping the phone. Mm. Uh, we can get to what we call a SAR lock. And it, um, once we've got their permission, as long as we can get a signal to them, obviously, uh, they can give us permission to locate their phone, and it just comes up on the mapping on the computer and says... That's, that's where the that's that's where they are. Oh, that's where the phone is. That's where the phone is. <laughs> yes, and you hope they have yeah. it on them. You hope it's you hope it's working. Mm. But a uh... bit more difficult down a cave, though, I guess. And I know you've a lot of experience in um, cave rescues and in caving generally, haven't you? Yeah, I've been caving uh, now for over fifty years. Really, I started very young. young. I did start very young. <laughs> I was 11, and my brother took me. He was six years older than me. He said, well, look, Pete, you're small and you're expendable. You better come down. I've got this little hole that wants pushing. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so and uh, the strange thing is, even now, I, I spend all the spare time I can do uh, trying to find new caves, either digging or researching, trying to find where there are. Through, there's often new caves to be found through the old mine systems. Mm. So you might dig at a mine to get to a cave or just to get to the mine. The mines are interesting in their own rights. Mm. But I still get as much pleasure now out of finding new caves as, as I did 50 years ago. Brilliant. <laughs> it's one of the last <laughs> And you get I've to been. name them yourself, do you, if you find a new one? Oh, you get, yes. You, well, you, if you, as long as you survey them, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's all everything is available through the uh, caving uh, media, mm-hmm. uh, and all of the surveys are uh, lodged with the British Cave Research Association and thereby into the British um, British Library. Mm-hmm. Then you are allowed to name all of the parts of the cave and the cave itself, and if, the it's cave complete, itself. And if it's completely new. Okay, so any particularly interesting one that you've named? Well, or are, an interesting name? I'm sure they're all interesting in themselves. There are some that aren't repeatable. Oh, okay. Because they're particularly squalid and particularly wet and really quite, quite unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, one that we did do uh, recently, uh, a couple of years ago, we had a reference in a mines journal from the 18, um, 1850s. And seven, property, 1850, a place called Hood Gill, which is up near Ulston. And our friend uh, Tony Harrison and myself, um, we got invited up to have a look at this small piece of cave within this large mine, which another group had been interested in the mines, mm. had opened the mine entrance up. And they said, oh, you might be interested in the cave. So the miner had found about four, five hundred metres of cave. Really nice, walking, lots of little bit graffiti there, you know, people's names and dates and that sort of, very nice. And that was all in the records. So we thought, oh, we'll go up and survey this, expecting to say, well, if we push all the little side passages, we might be able to push it out to a kilometre of passage. That'd be nice, nice cave. Well, we were pushing this. And one day we went to resurvey one of the passages. It, it was like low, flat-out crawling. And Tony says, look, I don't think I've got this one quite right. There's an error here. Can we just redo this bit? Yeah, sure. So I squeezed ahead. Got another another leg of the survey and another leg and another leg. And I said, it's still going on, Tony. Whether you've got it finishing, it doesn't. It's low and nasty, but it still goes on. Mm. So I pushed it. Then came to this curtain of what looked like rusty calcite. And there was a draft coming round it. And with this draft, it must go on beyond there. Mm. So I'm lying flat out. And I haven't got any tools with me. So I'm, so I'm hitting it with my hand. I said, give us a minute, Tone. I'm just going to hit this hit this rock for a bit. Thump, 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 thump. Crash. Crash down, down it comes. Clear it out of the way. Then I turtle my way through the mud after that. A little really tight S-bend. Far too tight for me, really. And I got through. And anyway... So we said, well, we'll have to come back because it carries on. We found another seven kilometres through there. Good grief. And all virgin all virgin cave, all the mud was pristine. Nobody had ever seen this before. Uh, and eventually we got to, in the whole system, we found 13.2 kilometres. But everything past that rusty curtain, which we called the Iron Curtain, we gave Russian names. Right. So then we went into Kamchatka <laughs> and into um, Stalingrad, which was a really big, horrible, loose mess of boulders, which seemed appropriate. So people said, why all these Russian names? Well, it's the other side of the Iron Curtain, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but that's, that was very interesting. It's become the first hypogenic cave which is a cave that is formed by water coming from below or from the sides rather than flowing from the top and through. Mm. And it's formed by sulfuric acid rather than most caves which are formed by carbonic acid, as in rain, uh, rain, yes. rainwater. And this, this sulfuric acid came off the huge um, galena, the 
the lead ore mm. in the veins that degraded to from lead sulfide to lead carbonate so white lead they call it and in that process that releases sulfuric acid and that creates like a warm if you like a warm cauldron of acid which then dissolves the rock more and so we end up with this maze system incredibly complex um as i say 13.2 kilometers and it is the longest maze in the country and where is that? That's not in Yorkshire, is it? It's in up near just near Alston. Near Alston. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but it's major mm. find. Mm. Um, I think it's the large, the longest limestone maze cave in Europe. No, well, that's that's um, that that really, I think, must be quite a sense of achievement to have, uh, have located such yeah. a big, a big section that oh, no yes. one had seen before. Yeah, we found a lot in the Dale, just mm. in Swaledale, um, Devis Mine. We found about another th- uh, about three and a half miles in there. Um, lots of other uh, smaller and larger caves. Anything from a small cave can be beautiful at fifty meters long, and equally, it can, you can find another one that's one that's a mile or so long, still in this dale. And there's mm-hmm. still there are still lots of caves to find. I'm always well. It's not something I guess that that you do, but maybe when you have to rescue people, do you sometimes have to rescue people who've gone exploring themselves? Oh yes. Who don't know what they're doing. That's now in that question. There's a presumption. There's a that presumption that they don't know what they're doing. Okay. There is. Okay. Most people. It is true that uh, there is a risk of people not knowing what they're doing getting into trouble because of their ignorance. Mm. However, in my experience, in this area, which isn't quite typical of all mountain rescue areas, uh, because we don't have the incredibly high number of people that would go up, say, Snowden, mm. or up in, uh, into the lakes, where you get a lot more people going poorly equipped in and not realising how serious the conditions are. But most people here are pretty well equipped, and the most people seem to be fairly sensible. There are some that aren't, but I haven't yet come across anybody who's done anything more stupid than something that I've done. And I've done some really stupid things, <laughs> but I've been lucky and I've got away with it most of the time. Hmm. So you can't really blame you, people you for being unlucky. No, no. no when they do sure. do something stupid, we n- I always make a point, with the, especially with the younger members of the team, hmm. not to have a go at people. At least they're out doing something. At least they're not. At least they're not sat at home in front of a computer just getting lardy. Yes. Um, if they're out trying to do something, help them, encourage them. They'll do it better next time, mm. as long as they survive. And this is it. You learn from your mistakes. If you don't learn from your mistakes, then it's a problem. Yeah. Well, there's some that don't. <laughs> yes. I do remember the one fellow that we had to rescue three times in one weekend. He wasn't a fast learner. Oh, that was. Up high or down low? He was underground, mm-hmm. uh, but not in this area. That was in the uh, area further south when mm. I belonged to a different team as well. Yes. Three but times in one weekend. He was mm. trying hard. He was trying hard. But to be fair, we were still nice to him, and we still pointed him in the direction of some of the caving clubs. He said, go out with the caving club, you'll learn off them, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll survive a bit longer. <laughs> Now then, just just to say about the the um, the rescue uh, team that you yeah. have, 
Um, do you have how many volunteers do you have now working on that? Well, we work, in this area. Yeah, uh, in Swell Mountain mm. Rescue, we have uh, towards forty mm. as a maximum number because we obviously we have to kit people out and train them, and there's a minimum of twelve months training. Mm. Um, and until you get to that, actually, you're a bit of a liability. However good you might be at mountaineering or climbing or potholing, mm. um, until you actually know how the team works and how to interact with the rest of the team, uh, you really aren't much use to us. Um, so they do they shadow when they're being trained then? Or? We have, these, day, it, these days, we have a fairly formal, formal training. Uh, it used to be you'd turn up and just get, um, get stuck in. You just get yeah, <laughs> Quite much literally. more so, yeah. Uh, but you'd, you know, you'd actually get more shadowed uh, mm. by somebody, and that's the way I, I came into it. Yes. I never did a formal training. as uh, But now we have a logbook, and you have to log against each of the skill sets that you've uh, learned to show a proficiency at. And you don't have to be brilliant at everything. You do pretty fit, though, I would think. Reasonably, yes. But if you're, if, if you're in control... Mm. It's a it's a, a cup of tea and a slippers job. Oh well, right, okay, yes. And so it should be, mm. so that you're not you can't be out on the fell mm. and running control. The best people at control are the ones that sit sit there, have no intention of uh, getting cold and wet, and most of the time they run it in the best, most efficient fashion. They need to have done that as well, so they understand it. Mm. But very calm very matter-of-fact, and pulling in the right right things, like it could be the air ambulance or the, uh, what now is the Bristow, um, uh, the, the RAF rescue, mm. or any of the other teams, because if an incident gets too large, we always bring in the other rescue teams. Mm. You never try to say, we can do this on our own. Well, we might be able to, but then... It's not fair to the casualty. If we think we might need help, we bring them in early. Mm. And if we don't, if they're not needed, nobody ever minds. And you support other teams. I, I saw mm. on the um, on one of your pa- on one of the Facebook pages. I think that you actually coordinate and support other teams as well. You get called. Presumably, it's a two way. Yeah. Yes. Yes, very much so. I mean, over the years, we've been to. Uh, I suppose the biggest one people remember is the number of t- when we went up to Lockerbie. Mm. Um, that was many, many rescue teams. I, I don't know how many now. Um, but we'll go out to help, in, especially on searches, because you just need you need lots of people, lots of search dogs mm. to cover often huge areas. So we've been we frequently go to into Teesdale area or across into the North Yorkshire Moors, mm. um, helping there. So and any and if we we have a an underground incident. Because underground rescues eat people. If you've got um, a small team of, say, six at the sharp end, un- a long way underground, you'll have a hundred people supporting that. Uh, really it's, inc- it's It's just exponential. And the longer it goes on, mm. the numbers just increase and increase. And they have to, because you've got to put, you, you've got a constant feed of uh, people equipment, knowledge. And also you don't want to jeopardise the rescue team, do you? I suppose you've got to be aware of how long they can continue without putting themselves at risk too. The priority 
army rescue which we drum into people from the moment they start to, to have anything to do with the team is your first responsibility is to yourself mm. your second responsibility is to the rescue other members of the rescue team your third responsibility is to the other people in a group who is with the casualty the last person you look after is the casualty right. if you want to be a bit more harsh about it you say the first person to die is the casualty not us mm. it sounds very harsh but that's yes. the way it has to be well yes you can't uh, as I say you can't put yourselves at risk that must well, be one of the the most difficult things yeah. for people coming mm. in new to accept I would think that uh, they've got to put themselves first yeah well you do you do by especially underground do you do um, put yourself at some risk mm. but it's a measured risk and it's up to people more the older more experienced people like myself to go no we're not doing that mm. no before we do that we're going to put this in place oh but I can just go no mm. it's just Yes, yes. Most of the time it's no but. <laughs> no but. <laughs> but the thing is, if if there is a problem for the rescuer, they're not going to rescue the person. No. So it's, it's and so, so long as you're fit and healthy, you can do it. But yes. there again, as you're saying, the control team, you don't have to you be. You don't, no. Uh, if you're running control or then there's the actual sharp end, as it were, Delivering the rescue on the ground is a is a small part of the rescue team. Mm-hmm. That's usually performed by twelve to twelve to sixteen people for a small for a standard sort of two hour. Most rescues happen within two hours, done and dusted. Right, short then. Yeah, then there's another other times they'll go all night or for days. Mm. Uh, you never know which is going to be. But most of them deliver, say, 12, 16 people, and out of towards 40, um, obviously it isn't all the team. Mm. And we work on the principle for call-out, that out of the total number of people, we need a minimum of um, about 16 within the hour. Ideally, we'd like to push that to 20 within the hour, uh, because you can't move casualty any great distance without a lot of people mm. and because it isn't just the people on the stretcher it isn't just the people patching them they're doing the casualty care on them it's you've got somebody on communications you've got somebody running control um then you've got people doing fetching other equipment and you've got to have your drivers uh so the numbers There's a lot goes into it then so yeah. the coordination of it is um quite challenging I would think at times yeah we're very lucky now that uh, technology has helped us a lot mm. because we've got systems um, that we somebody can be in control in their office anywhere in the country right so it's all run on a computer and we have a system called SAR call mm. so search and rescue call out which is being adopted by the, uh, a lot of the police forces as well and by a lot of the other agencies. So there's a lot more interaction between us. And we can actually see within this computer system, um, we can see what each other's doing. Mm. And there's a log there showing what's happened in the rescue. And the police and the RAF and the air ambulance, they can all read what's going on. Mm. And they can anticipate what we need, might need, even before we've asked for it. 
So we can say, ah, well, we're going to need a helicopter. Well, the helicopter, even whilst we're asking for one, says, yes, we know about this. They've, and, already, been, they've already been alerted. Yeah, and we're ready to go as soon as you want us to. So that has, I'd say revolutionised, it's certainly speeded up things a lot. Mm. Um, the communication is now just so much better. And I think really, listening to all of this, Peter, I had absolutely no idea how much was involved yeah. um, in it. Well, over the past few years, there's uh, been a remarkable uh, set of work done just on the communications within the Vale. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first joined, we didn't even have radios. You'd disappear off into the hills and you'd get a result five, out, five hours later. But now we've got, uh, we have digital radios. Uh, the leaders have a police radio each. So we can we can speak directly into the um, into police control as well, um, and we have a digital radio system that has been set up through the Dales, principally by um, uh, a lad from this village. Really? Yeah, from from Hela. Right. And so Paul Denning. Oh right. Yeah, he okay. was he's been the main mover for it. Right. Um, and he's done a remarkably good job. Mm. Uh, so there's a series of transmitters that are all linked together through Swaledale and Wensydale. And they cover most of our patch, down to Ripon, across to the Cumbrian border, up to the Durham border. And we've got probably 90 plus percent uh, coverage. Coverage, now. right. And with, because it's digital, it's nice and clear. Um, and it's cost an absolute fortune. <laughs> but... But now it's here. Was that, that was setting it up and installing it and getting yeah. the initial equipment. Yes. Presumably the running costs are not... As expensive, um, or are they maintenance? Yeah, there's maintenance oh. issues, and then you've always got to upgrade, mm. and your radios don't last forever. No, especially when we're using because we're fairly rough with them. Mm. You try because of because of where you go, yes. of necessity, yeah. yes. Yeah, but what is set up is is uh, it's a very very good system, mm. um, and there's ways of improving it and, in, and developing it further, which uh, as we can afford it, yeah, people. And with that really does rely on donations or grants of some sort, mm. a lottery grants we've we've had towards these sort of things. Um, but anybody wanting to donate to the to uh, to the team, that's the sort of thing that we can put money straight into. But mm. that's tens of thousands. Mm. Um, but it's co- communication is everything. And underground, we have various systems. We have ground ground penetrating radios. Because <laughs> yes. I presumed once you went down that maybe communication would be a big problem. No, well, there's, there's principally three ways underground of communicating. So imagine that you're a mile underground, which you could easily be in Swaledale. In fact, mm-hmm. you could be up to about five miles underground if you pick the right place. Um, but a mile underground wouldn't be untoward here. So that would might say so you might be looking at a couple of hours mm-hmm. to get there. So you've either got runners. So you'd have somebody with a piece of notepaper running in and out of the incident. So that takes quite a long time. Because you, ne- you probably, it's, it's not so much running as squeezing and climbing. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Or if it's a long mind level, especially in fairly, fairly straightforwards, we might run a field telephone wiring. Now that has the advantage of that at any point in that telephone wire, you can clip a radio onto it. And you can get absolutely perfect uh, communications. But you do have to run a wire through. Mm. Uh, we do carry about five or six kilometres of wire. Um, we've never had to use it in anger. 
Right. Um, not 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 the five or six kilometres. No, we have u- we've used about a quarter of a mile of it uh, to mm. an incident when Landra stuck down a rift. Um which but it was really good. But otherwise we have um some underground systems that penetrate the with the rock through very low frequency radio waves. Um they go under various names over the years. We've had one called a mole phone, then a hay phone, uh, then there was one called Nicola, and we have one called a uh, cave link. And at the moment, the one we're using is um, called cave link, and it's a texting system. So you don't actually speak on it, you send text to each other, which is great for these young people that can just text away. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, but it works well. It's... Uh, it has the disadvantage that you haven't got speech and there's no intonation. And it's the a... usual option of it being misinterpreted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now your um, your headquarters, I understand, is at Cutrick Garrison. It is these days. Yes. Yes. We have a purpose purpose built, um, rather posh um, headquarters, uh, garaging, and we have it as a community shared facility. So, uh, but we got the money for building it through the through a lottery a lottery grant, right? Um, and we agreed that the training rooms and um, classrooms uh, could be used by the local community. Well, you get used to realizing that nothing can happen without a whole group of people. Mm. Team um, building. Yes. Yes. It, yeah, it's a term I tend to tend to avoid. Tend to avoid, do you <laughs> yeah, know? But it's um, but it is. A You're universal, quite right. Yes. You're quite right. It is, um, and everybody contributes in a completely different way. I mean, for many years uh, up in Swaledale, um, for about fifteen years, in the, the there was only one member of the rescue team up here, and that was me. Right. Nowadays, there's about ten or twelve, which is just so much better. Mm. Because it would be that, because of our call out, we don't operate like um, like the fire brigade, for example, or like the lifeboats. They get called, they go to their vehicle or their boat, then they all set off, set off as a group, yeah. arrive at the incident, and then they all have designated jobs. Now, when we practice, we tend to practice more like that. But the reality of a call out is that... The call out will come and everybody will go directly to the incident site or to a rendezvous point near to it. There will be designated drivers to bring the vehicles from Catrick and they will they will come in, ideally with some more members coming from that direction, mm-hmm. depending on which direction we're going in for the call out. So frequently you can arrive or one of the team members can arrive at a rescue on their own. And then you have to say, what can I do on my own? Well, there's a whole bunch of things you can do. You can gather information, you can find out where the casualties, you can find out the all the details, and you can make the area ready for the team, the rest of the team to arrive. It may well be that you have to jump straight in and do something to stabilise the situation with the casualty. Like, if they're hanging off a crag, you might have to do something immediate. Mm. But you've still got to have in mind that the rest of the ca- the rest of the team is coming in and they have all the skills and they mm. have all the equipment and the training. And on your own, you're unlikely to be able to, to be that much benefit except consolidating the, the information. And then as somebody else arrives, 
then then you share it and then you take on the most appropriate jobs like frequently uh, you'll have say six different jobs you should be doing and you're trying to do them all at the same time mm. so as soon as somebody else arrives they get the radios you do all the communications i'll deal with i'll deal with the situation somebody else arrives okay now you can deal with this part of the situation so you try to as especially as a rescue leader your job is to get rid of the jobs and if you do your job well as a rescue leader in the shortest possible time you're stood there doing nothing and just watching everybody else do it coordination yeah but when you first arrive there you're doing everything and you have to be able to do everything adequately and try not to kill the casualty (laughs) (laughs) we're laughing but it's no joke it's no joke (laughs) yeah well actually to be fair it's a lot of fun Mm. um well you've been doing it a long time so it can't be all that bad no it's you wouldn't continue would you it can be very satisfying and very diverse i would think you never you never know there, there is no such thing as a standard rescue so if anybody wanted to become involved in in some way yeah with with uh, the group what would you suggest they do in the first instance well there's uh, there's two or three ways of being of being involved mm-hmm. if you want to become a, a full team trained member then you can proceed through the website and put an application in, make contact initially, come out. Then we yeah, we will see you, interview you, uh, get to know, just just come to some of the um, informally to uh, to uh, to the team, especially to fundraising, just to get to know characters and then see if it's what you want to belong to. Mm-hmm. Then we have a selection with training weekend where you have to navigate yourself at night to a location on the top of the fell. Then you have to overnight with us, and then then we'll do some stretcher ex- carrying exercises next day, or some or a similar mm. sort of thing. And that's mostly just to see how people interact. Mm. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are if you can't get on with people, and often people that aren't your friends, the people that you meet up with on rescues. Mm. So you have to get on regardless. And if you can't do that, we don't want you. You've got to fit in some way. Yes, yes. So they'd contact through yeah. the website, would they? Through the website. But you don't have to be a full team member to be involved. Mm. There's a lot of people that get involved with fundraising mm. and helping with, um, uh, they might want to come and just help with looking after the base, which is brilliant. Because the more time you spend doing that, the less time you spend out training and uh, bringing on the on, on the uh, new, new team members. Mm. No, well, it's um, it's phenomenal what you do. I, I knew a little about it. Now I know a lot more, and I'm sure the listeners will find it uh, fascinating. On a lighter note, yes. Last year, and I missed it. I'm sorry to say, you yeah. you actually wrote the play, did you? Yeah. Well, for the last few years, um, you wrote a play just to explain play. to yeah. listeners what it was. That's well, I've the always best been. Thing. Yeah, I've been involved in. Um, local amdram and yes. pantomimes and such like for the last quite a few years yes yes yeah. i think i've done 20 pantomimes all day. really hmm. <laughs> yes um and past few years i've done a lot of performance poetry work um and the swaledale festival has commissioned me to write a series of plays 
which just seemed to go down quite well. Well, it seemed to be sold out, so they can't mm. be too bad. And uh, so this year, uh, they asked me if I'd prepared to do another one. So I, said, so I agreed to. And I thought I'd base it on a mountain rescue team. Um, the play revolves around, well, really around, it's not a group of heroes. It's a group of very ordinary people that occasionally do something extraordinary. Yes. Yes, I based um, on this sort of thought. Lots of people over the years asked me, said, well, what was it like when you go out on a, on a call? Is it really exciting? Mm. Whatever? And you go, well, not usually, no. Most of the time it's sort of quite mundane and and often quite inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I put, tried to put the thoughts together and I couldn't try to explain it very well. So I put it together as a, as a, as, as a poem just to say, well, what's it like? to be called out not on anything not somebody hanging off a crack just an ordinary nothing spectacular yes mm. somebody's lost someone in need yeah you don't know what it is and it's the process of getting there and, and it's usually in the middle of the night and it's usually when you have a really long day and suddenly it's three o'clock in the morning and, you've got, and, the, and the phone goes and you go oh right and of course, it's voluntary, so you don't have to go. And you are not obliged, for any reason at all, you can say, no, I'm not going. And there's no judgment about that. Mm. You say, well, yeah, either can, you can't. In some instances, someone may have actually been in the pub, and they can't go because they're not no, able to in that respect. Right. You know, we do they've been out socially. <laughs> yes, 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 that's it. And that we we've had that um, on a number of occasions, and yeah. been other teams. We've we've had in the middle of the Christmas dinner. Oh no! So the whole of the team has been there, and you're all fairly well oiled. And you go, oh, is anybody sober in here? Who's the designated <laughs> driver? <laughs> yeah. um, and are we fit to do this rescue? Mm-hmm. Do we have to call in another team? So these days much more sensibly, when we have a do, we notify all the other adjoining teams and say, we've got a do on this night, and will you cover our area? Will you stand by in case needed? Just in case. (laughs) Uh, And it's much more sensible. Frequently you'll find that there's two or three people who who don't drink. Mm. And they because it's our area, they can go with local knowledge and assist another team Mm. doing it. But... Yeah, and the other one is Christmas Day. I think I've averaged every alternate alternate Christmas Day. Did you Actually, ma- did you manage the last one? I did. Yeah. Not the one before that. Right. The one before we had two callouts on the same day. Oh. Yes, one 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 gentleman unfortunately uh, uh, took took a big walk across the hills and had a heart attack. Oh dear. Yes, um, it was very sad. Uh, so, are you going to are you oh, going yes. to read the, yes, your, the your poem for us? No. The poem's called "The Shout." Bec- uh, that's because in many teams a call out is referred to as a shout, because uh, the shout would go out and you'd all respond to it, um, especially before radios or mobile phones. The shout. <laughs> the dog is <laughs> the dog's leaving now. She's heard it before. You've heard this before, you? <laughs> Mary, come here. It was Mary, Mary the dog here. She's helped in a lot of rescues as well. And my old, over the over the years, all of my all of my collies, they're all, mm. all collie dogs. 
they've all helped uh, principally in animal rescues because mm. they're really useful uh, to stop a sheep jumping back down the hole you've just fetched them out of. <laughs> so you can park the dog mm. or if they're on a crag they'll want to run off in the opposite direction. So you can park the dog at the other end mm. and that'll sort of just keep the sheep back long enough until you can get hold of it. Yes. So dogs are really useful in rescues, even mm. though she, she's not a search-rescue dog. No. But she's assisted in... A, a very practical border collie. Yes, very good. All right. Meanwhile, the shout. Someone's lost. Lost out there. Out there somewhere. But where? Where? And should I care? Who are they? I don't know. Just need to go. And search until they're found. Or not. And then go home, for that's the way it is when someone's lost. A call will come, and for a moment in the early hours, conscious thought will wrestle through the treacle mire of deep, deep sleep, which tries to drag me back to warm, soft oblivion. I could ignore the call, tell myself I have not heard. But by now, I've picked my eyeballs from the carpet, blinking out the dust and grit, waking to a new reality. A reality of boots and maps and over-trousers, of coffee flask and food, to starve the cold, of battery lamps to see me through the night, to see what might be found. Then, out driving, blown dark moor roads, comfort in this time, a time to still the mind, to gather thoughts together, to sort out what errors have brought me to this place tonight. A place now filled with blue light bustle, with cheery friends and greetings, soon dispatched to seek through darkness, to find whatever might remain. Alive or dead, unfortunate or foolish, it's not for me to judge, it's not for me to blame. You take the call, you walk the road, you find whatever is yours to find. And whatever there is good, take home. And whatever else, leave behind. Thank you for that, Pete. And you. <laughs> <laughs> you almost say quiet. Yes. Okay. Okay. No, yeah. that was that was lovely. That was a um, a lot of thought gone into that mm. and a lot of emotion too. Yeah. Yes. Actually, some of the rescues are very funny. Do you want to give us some? Um, well, well, briefly, we did want to rescue Merlin. Merlin? Yes. <laughs> I'm go- I'm, I seem to remember he was up Gunnerside Gill. And there was um, there was one of these enactments. Oh, an enactment. So, okay. And so we had the whole of the Lord of the Rings characters all around the Dale for the whole weekend. Quest, doing great quests. And Merlin twisted his ankle, so we have to go and rescue Merlin, which we <laughs> thought was rather nice. In full costume. In full, in full costume, yes. Yeah. Um, better call out one winter, particularly foul winter, and it was blizzarding. And we had two call outs, and half the team had to go up to Hurst, and then so spending the night in, the, uh, in a barn somewhere. And the other half, which I was with, went up past Quinton Hostel. And to find an ambulance that had got stuck on the road somewhere between there and Leiden. With a patient in? Well, we weren't really sure at the time. Okay. As it turns out, not. It was the the driver was there. 
Um, but it was it was blizzarding so much that we we got up past the youth hostel, up at the top cattle cattle grid, and couldn't find the road. Mm. Twenty minutes it took us to find the road, even though we were on it. We just couldn't work. We cut where it went, yeah. and then we were half we we're halfway uh, to where we thought we might need to be, and then we found another car. By sheer chance, another um, recovery vehicle had gone to find the ambulance, but nobody had told us. Right. And this guy was in a bad way. Uh, he heater had failed in the in the car. He couldn't. He hadn't got lights or equipment or food or anything, and he was just about on his last legs, poor fellow. Mm. We, so we fished him out of his car and wrapped him up, and we just—he was just about walkable. So we walked it, walked him, walked him back, and we carried on and found the ambulance driver mm. right up on the tops. And I tried, tried, I went up to the, knocked on the door. Well, I don't know why we bothered. He came to the door. He was there in his shirt sleeves. He got, he <laughs> he got, got the hitter on him. Yeah, he was really nice and cosy. He says, oh, hello, lads. I didn't expect to see you until daybreak. He says, oh, come in, have a warm. <laughs> he didn't have the kettle on and a cup of tea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he almost expected that. So, yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it was really quite nice. Was the, uh, this guy was a little bit, he says, oh, well, oh, I'll walk out with you as you're here. <laughs> I said, well, you can just stay here all night. It doesn't matter. No. Yeah. He says, yeah, I'm quite happy. But at least you rescued the other guy who you wouldn't Which, have known was actually there. Yeah, and that really showed that I don't think is likely to happen these days because the communications between the services are so much mm. better. But somewhere between the ambulance, the police and the recovery company, this boat got lost. You just mm. got lost in the system. They knew it was stuck, mm. but... They weren't sure where, presumably. Maybe well, GPS not so good then? There wasn't it. There, there wasn't G- any GPS. Yeah, but now then, we didn't no. use it. Yeah, it's a long time mm. ago. So uh, we likely think that wouldn't happen, but it probably will. Mm. Yeah. Well, you'll always get there, I'm sure. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'd just like to say thank you very much, Pete. That's been um, a very varied talk, actually, mm. and I'm sure the listeners will find it really interesting. Yes, I hope so. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, so this is Susan signing out from inside Yorkshire. <laughs>